little bit. Uh, for those of you that, that don't know, uh, I am a member of the board for the Restore Network, so if anybody's upset that he's leaving, you can direct some of your anger at me, but, but I can tell you, Jordan was not looking to leave. He loves this church. Um, we, we did not foresee this position coming open for a very long time, and, and, and it came open through some circumstances that we couldn't control, that we didn't see. Um, and so as we were discussing it uh, as a board, you know, some of the board members are like, well, do we have any internal candidates? Because Jordan uh, was working a little bit as director of church partnerships. They're like, do we have any internal candidates? And I'm like, oh, man, please no. And so our executive team approached Jordan multiple times and said, hey, would you be interested? And Jordan was like, no. And I'm like, sweet. He's going to stay. But as we know, sometimes God just doesn't let that door shut. And so God moves in a mysterious way. And so as he was moving Jordan into this, this role, uh, into this decision, we we're having a meeting and they asked me, they're like, Chad, you work with them. You're at the church. Is there anything that we need to know about them? What would you say about Jordan? And so I told them that he did meth and because uh, I wanted to tank him. And so apparently Restore is okay with that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, so as we transition, like I, th I think it's important for us to remember, it's important for us to articulate and verbalize that this church, this church belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to Jordan. It does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to the elders. It doesn't belong to you. But this is the Lord's church. And so I would invite you uh, over the next several months to be in diligent prayer for our church. And so if you were here last Sunday night, we had Journey PM. We set aside some dedicated time to pray together as a church for um, <clears throat> the next several months. And so there are three things that we wanted to pray about. And so I want to share those with you now uh, again. And so I would encourage you to pray over these things as we go along. So number one, pray for Jordan and just have a spirit of thankfulness for how he has led us. Right? We have so much to be thankful for, and so uh, just be in prayer for that, thanking the Lord for his ministry, but also looking forward that the Lord would continue to bless his ministry. He's done a tremendous job here, and so we want to send him out well and hope that he does a, a wonderful job for Restore. So the second thing I would say, pray for wisdom and discernment, that as we move forward as a church, that we would see as the Lord sees, not as we would see. And so let's pray for direction. Let's pray that we would have humility to understand his direction that he's laid out for us. And lastly, I would say, let's pray for whomever the Lord is going to raise up in our midst. That the Lord already knows who he's going to be bringing here, who he is bringing to lead this body. And so that's not a surprise to him. It may be unknown to us, but we can go ahead and pray for him and his family that they would be sensitive to the Lord's calling, that the Lord would be preparing him for faithful service here. So I would invite you to pray on Wednesdays at lunchtime. We are fasting together as a church, and so I would invite you to, to skip lunch on Wednesday, not because food is bad, but to spend that time praying for the church, praying for the Lord's direction that we would see that. And so there are two things that I, I'm very confident of as we move forward. And the first one is that, that God's going to bring about his plan. And that's where my confidence rests. And so I want you all to be in confidence about that as well. And so the second thing I want us to know, like we're going to cut funding for Restore. So, um, so we're going to do that. <laughs> Somebody said amen. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, 
No thought, Jordan, you're fun. Um, so we're going to transition to John chapter 7. And so we have spent the last several months looking at John chapter 5 and uh, chapter 6. And so we saw the feeding of the 5,000. That was 5,000 men. And so scholars would say that's probably looking at a crowd upwards of almost 20,000. And once you throw in women and children. And so um, because of this great sign, we see that the crowd, they want to make Jesus a king by force, right? And so Jesus... He resists this, and, and as they um, continue to seek him out for teaching, he starts to share some really hard truths with them. He says that he has been sent from heaven. He equates himself with God the Father, which is a big deal for these Jewish people. He tells them that, he has to, that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, right? Jesus uses these physical descriptions to convey a spiritual truth a spiritual reality. And so Jesus is continually pointing the crowd to their spiritual needs and not their physical needs. And so we learn that the crowd, they want full bellies. They're just interested in signs. They're not really interested in a spiritual savior. And so what's the result that we saw? At the very end of last week, we see in John chapter 6 that many followers stopped following him. So the crowd goes from about 20,000 down to 12, essentially, his most trusted disciples. And so it's not just that the crowd doesn't want to follow him anymore, but because of what Jesus has said, the intensity, the heat, the hatred towards Jesus has ratcheted up. One scholar said it's gone from a campfire to an all-out inferno. And we've seen pictures on the news this week of the inferno over in Hawaii. Like, that's the kind of heat that is surrounding Jesus. And so this is what David Platt says about this. He says, people love a preacher or a teacher who says just what they want to hear. You can draw the crowds, gain the accolades, and have everything go smoothly as long as you tell people what they want to hear. But when you tell the truth, people will look at you like you're their enemy. And that's exactly the scenario that Jesus is finding himself in. And so I was reading R.C. Sproul's commentary on this, and so as he was introducing the passage... He said that he always liked to remind his seminary students that as they read through, try to sense the drama that's behind the passage. For us, we're, we're familiar with John's gospel in many respects, and so we, we have a tendency to just to read right through it. But there's an intense amount of drama here. Jesus is under a real threat of death, right? And so we want to, to consider that. What is it like to live under a death threat? Think about your own life. Has anybody ever legitimately had it out for you so much that they wanted to kill you? And if that's the case, right, if that was something that you experienced, wouldn't that change your perspective? Wouldn't that change how you go about your life? I know that, that I change my course of action when I only mildly annoy someone, right? You can ask my wife about that one. But... It has a real bearing on how we approach the world. So today we're going to continue to see the opposition, opposition against Jesus. And some of this opposition is even going to come from a very unlikely source, one that we wouldn't necessarily expect. And we're also going to see that Jesus, he's on, a, on a, um, a divine sovereign timeline. He's going to be pushed to make himself known, but he's going to resist because he knows that's not, that's not part of God's plan at the moment. And so he's going to resist that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. We're going to read through verses 1 through 13. And so this is what God's Word says. 
It says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booths, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works for which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There is much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that provides our understanding. We pray for grace and wisdom as you teach us today. Help us not to be like the crowds who wanted to see a show and who only wanted their own needs met. Instead, help us to truly know that you possess the words that lead to eternal life. Lord, may you prepare our hearts to follow you even when it's difficult. And so, Spirit, we pray that you would move in our midst today. We thank you and we love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Okay, so let's look again at verses 1 and 2. And so, John says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booths, was near. And so, when John says after this, we are skipping forward in the narrative about six or seven months from the end of chapter six. And so we want to remember that John's purpose is not to provide us some sort of exhaustive commentary, but his purpose is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one from God. And so with that, John's primary purpose is that we might believe in Jesus. And so we see this later on as John explicitly states this in John chapter 20, uh, verse 30 and 31, when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we're jumping forward in the narrative, and we know that Jesus is continuing to kill his movement. He had a large crowd following him, but now their interest has gone to disinterest, and more so even to wanting him dead. He won't even go into Jerusalem or the surrounding area, because if he does, he's afraid that he's going to be snatched, he's going to be killed. So he's not going there, but he's doing everything possible to drive the crowds away, right? We think that that is crazy. A modern PR firm would tell Jesus to stop doing the things you're doing. You're killing your movement. And so his crowds, they've gone from 20,000. He's basically got 12 of them left. And so whereas in chapter 5 and 6, we saw Jesus teaching 20,000 people over the course of two days, he spent the past six or seven months in intense discipleship with his followers, 
these six or seven months, really pouring into them. And so we also see in these verses that it's the Feast of Booths. Uh, you might also recognize this as the Feast of Tabernacles. This occurred in the Jewish calendar in September or October every year, depending on the lunar cycle. And so that's how we know that we have fast-forwarded these six or seven months. And so this is one of three main festivals that the Jews celebrated annually. If you want to look at its establishment, you can find that in Leviticus chapter 23. But this was a feast of celebration. It was a feast of thanksgiving. It was a big deal. And so people would live in these makeshift shelters as a way to remember God's faithfulness for them wandering in the desert. So if you're familiar, as they wandered those 40 years, they would go wherever the Lord leads them. And wherever the Lord would stop, they would sit down, they would camp, and they would live in these booths or these tents. And so this festival was established in order to commemorate that. And so if you're walking through uh, Israel at this time, if you're in the rural areas, you would see these tents, you'd see these booths set up along the sides of the roads. If you're in a city or a town, you would see these booths set up on top of the flat roofs, uh, on top of houses that they would live in. And so this festival was also known for a couple of big rituals which Jesus is going to draw on, one of them being about drawing water, and another about... Um, lighting a lamp. And so Jesus is going to touch on these as he teaches the crowds here in just a little bit. But one of these, one of these rituals that, that we don't really understand, that we don't get to see every day as part of this festival, the priest would come from the temple and he'd have a pitcher and he would walk through the middle of the city to the pool of Siloam. And there he would take the pitcher, he would dip it in the water, and then he would walk back to the temple and he would pour this water out on the altar. And so the whole time that he's doing this, you have crowds that are following the priest and they're singing and they're rejoicing. And so Isaiah 12 draws on this. And so look at, uh, look at Isaiah 12 with me. This is what Isaiah says. He says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from wells of salvation. That's where this ritual comes from. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So we want to see that this festival, it's a big deal. And John just isn't throwing this in here as a throwaway detail. It's not an afterthought, but he's putting this in there intentionally. And so look at what the expository commentary says. This will be on the screen. It says, The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, commemorated God's provision for Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness, living in tabernacles on their way to the land of promise. This feast was celebrated yearly because Israel needed to learn that the way God had saved them in the past would be the way that he would save them in the future. And so God is going to do that miraculously. He's going to be his own doing. And so remember, Jesus is doing all these signs in front of the crowds, but he's pointing them to something greater. He's, remind, he's trying to tell them that the signs aren't the point. 
I'm pointing to something greater. Jordan used the example of seeing the billboard for Lambert's on the side of the road. Nobody goes to that sign and sits there and stands beside it and hopes that they get a throat roll. That would be pretty silly. But that sign is pointing to the actual restaurant where you can go and get something greater. You can get a throat roll, right? And so in the same way, the Feast of Booths is pointing us to something greater. And it's pointing to the salvation that is in their midst. We saw that the crowds, they don't want a spiritual savior. That's why they've abandoned Jesus. And it's ironic that they want to kill the very salvation that God is in the process of providing them. So let's look at verses 3 through 5. So therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his own brothers were believing in him. So we're introduced to Jesus' brothers here. And so these are other naturally born children of Mary and Joseph. And so this isn't the only place that they're referred to uh, in Scripture. We see them appear in other places in the Gospels. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 13, 53 through 56. And Matthew tells us, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things. And so, if you'll allow me, I want to take a, a small digression because, again, sometimes we have a tendency just to read past some of this, but when we talk about passages like this, they can help us understand why it is that we believe exactly what we believe, why we believe that our interpretation of things is valid compared to some other interpretations out there. And so, when you see that, that Jesus had brothers... Some would question, well, wasn't Mary a virgin? And so, yes, we believe that Mary was a virgin, that when she gave birth to Jesus, she had not had sexual relationship with any man, right? We see that all throughout Scripture. And so, even though that was the case when Jesus was born, that does not mean that she remained a virgin throughout her entire life. And so, some denominations, Catholics, some mainline denominations, they hold to a theory that Jesus, or that Mary that she had perpetual virginity. And because of that status, they believe that she has a special role in the faith, primarily that she acts as a mediator for us so that when we uh, feel like we can't get through to God, we can pray to Mary and she will intercede on our behalf. And so we want to look at why do we not believe that? And so there are three principles that we generally hold to. We've had some questions here over the past couple of weeks. Why is it that we believe what we believe when we read the Bible? Is it just because that's what we want? And so let me share with you three principles that we generally hold to as we evaluate, as we interpret Scripture. And so principle number one, the Bible interprets itself. And so Scripture makes itself known using other Scripture because Scripture isn't trying to confuse us. So we will look... At, at things that may be a little difficult to explain in a passage, and we'll look for other passages in Scripture that might 
say it more clearly that will be easier to understand. And so the question that we're always asking when we come to something like this is how does this fit in with the clearly established scripture that we find elsewhere? And so a great example of this, we went through this with our students. We're going through the book of Galatians, and so Paul makes reference there. He says, baptism saves you. And so there are some people that will say, they'll point that out and say, hey, we have to be baptized in order to be saved, because Paul says, baptism saves you. So what that, what that means for them is if you came and you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you came today and said, hey... I want to be baptized. Chances are we're not going to baptize you today because it takes a really long time to fill up our trough. It takes a really long time to get it to a water temperature where you won't freeze. So we will tell you, like, hey, come back next week. We would love to baptize you. But if you were to walk out of here and go out on on the road and a Pepsi truck hits you and you die before you got baptized, there are denominations that would say, sorry, you're out of luck. You're not going to heaven because... Scripture tells us baptism saves you. But if we think about that, what's the most clearest example in Scripture that we have of someone who is saved that didn't receive baptism? The thief on the cross. Somebody said it. Yep. We have the thief on the cross where Jesus and him are having this dialogue as they're dying. They're being crucified. And Jesus tells them today, hey, you're going to be with me in heaven. You're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't then yell to the Romans, hey, let this guy down, dunk him in some water, and then you can put him back up there, right? We don't, we don't see that happening in Scripture. But we know because Jesus said it, hey, this guy's in heaven. So that's principle number one. We want to look at how Scripture interprets itself. Principle number two, what is the plain reading and intention of the original language. And so I think most of us know that the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, and sometimes those translations can be a little clunky, right? And so um, it requires some effort on our part. We may have to do a little bit of digging, and so that's where this third principle comes in, that we rely on some trusted scholars. And the reason why we rely on some scholars and not others, we rely on those that hold to those first two principles really tightly, that the Bible interprets itself, that they look at that plain reading of Scripture. And so let's go back to what we learn about Jesus' brothers here. So in this case, we use Scripture to interpret itself, and we see clearly, we've already read, that the Bible talks about Jesus having other brothers, right? And so this is important We don't need Mary to be a virgin because we don't need a mediator. She doesn't have to retain that special status in order for us to have a mediator between us and God. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. This will be on the screen. It says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus. So we see that we we don't have to have Mary intercede for us, that that is already taken care of with Jesus. We see clearly that there are other brothers of Jesus in Scripture. And so principle number two, what is the Greek saying here? And so the Greek word that that John uses here, it's clearly and plainly used as brother. It's it's the word that is commonly associated with that familial relationship of a brother and sister or a brother and brother. 
And so sometimes, yes, you can use this word to describe a generic relationship, but here John is using it to highlight that this is a brother. And we see some of this in our own English language. Like, I have a brother. His name is Todd. I call him the Todd sometimes. But growing up, I had a pastor, and his name was Brother Hill. We called him Brother Hill. Now, that's not to say that because we use the same word that those two are equal. I have one brother, a physical brother, but we referred to my pastor as brother just in a generic sense. So do you see how all that works? And so these other denominations that would point and say, these aren't really brothers, they would point to, uh, yeah, the Greek, that, that word does say a physical brother, but we're going to use that alternate version. We're going to use that alternate definition. And so what they want to do is they want to use their doctrine in order to justify their choice for language. And so they'll, they'll acknowledge that, and they'll ignore that there are words that are used for some of the relationships that they say that this really highlights. They'll say that these were children uh, of Joseph from a previous relationship before Mary. Or they'll say that, oh, these must be cousins. Well, John doesn't use those Greek words that represent that. He's pointing to the clear usage of that term brother. And so trusted scholars, again, I'm not a Greek scholar, but the ones that we trust, they point to this, right? And, And so the argument is, well, Can you really trust an expert? Can you trust a scholar? Your scholar could be wrong. Well, yeah, that's very true. Scholars can be wrong, but if that's true for us, that can be true for you. And so remember, some of these denominations, uh, the Catholics in particular, they hold that the Pope's word is authoritative on the same level as the Bible. But I I would have you go read some of the history of the Pope's because it's really gross and really sorted. And so if we're relying on, on some scholars but not others, we, we want to take in the whole picture. And so we're, we're, we're used to trusting in experts, and that's okay, right? The experts tell me that I have a brain. I have never seen my brain, but I'm going to trust and believe that I have a brain. So it's okay to do that. But here was my favorite, my favorite argument as I jumped down this rabbit hole. And so I'm almost done with this, I promise. But my favorite argument was, well, Martin Luther, he believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary for most of his life. And so if he's the founder of the Reformation, if he's the one that started the split with the Catholic Church, well, he believed in that. Well, do you know why he believed in that? Because he was Catholic. So he he didn't believe it his entire life. Okay, so sorry for that little uh, side lesson. But let's continue on. So we see the brothers, right? They are coming to Jesus, and so they are challenging Jesus, basically. They're saying, hey, prove yourself. And so there are two main schools of thought on what their motivation may be as they're trying to get Jesus to prove himself. And so the first school of thought says that these brothers, they're just like the crowd. They're anticipating a military and a political savior, and so they... Uh, just by default, they misunderstand what the role of the Messiah is. And so they think that Jesus needs to win his followers back. And in order to do that, they need to go to Jerusalem. He needs to go and reveal himself publicly in order to jumpstart his movement. And so they don't realize that the signs that Jesus has been doing, they point to a spiritual reality. And they're just concerned about, hey, 
You need to build your movement. They assume that Jesus wants to be known publicly. They assume that he wants to be known openly. And so we know from Scripture that Jesus is a descendant of David's kingly line. We know that uh, through, through various Scriptures. And so because Jesus knows that, we know that the brothers would know that as well. And so they know, like, hey, the Messiah is coming through our family. And so, Jesus, if you're that Messiah, you can't be that Messiah in secret. So go and prove yourself. Okay? So the other school of thought looking at this, they think that, that the brothers are openly mocking Jesus, that they're taunting Jesus, that they themselves think that he's a fraud. And so can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Can you imagine... Mary saying to, to Judas and James and them, and is like, why can't you be more like Jesus? He never does anything wrong. Can you imagine how awful that would be? You know that Jesus would be the worst narc. Imagine the boys throwing a ball in the house. They knock over Mary's favorite pot, knocks it off the shelf, right? And it falls on the ground, and it shatters into a million pieces. Mary comes in and is like, who did this? You know she's looking directly at Jesus. She knows Jesus didn't do it but she knows that Jesus is going to tell the truth, right? And so he's going to narc on the rest of his brothers, and he's like, James did it. You know, how miserable would that be growing up as Jesus' brother? And so we see some of this in Scripture. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Mark writes, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. So they think that he's not even the real deal. And so basically, they're saying to Jesus, prove yourself. Because we lived with you, we don't believe you. We don't think that you're that Messiah. They lived with him, and they were so blinded by his humanity that they couldn't see his deity. That They couldn't see that they were living with and next to the very Son of God. Jordan mentioned this last week that, hey, if, if I saw those signs, I would believe. I would have no doubt. Some of us think that. I would believe if I saw the signs that Jesus performed. No, we wouldn't. We would be just like those brothers. They saw the signs, they lived with him, and yet they missed the point. So here's the big point. Jesus' family didn't even believe in his mission. They didn't believe in him. And so it's bad enough that the crowd, the Jews, the nation is standing against Jesus, but his own family wouldn't support him. Their support for him was just as conditional as those of uh, the crowd. The brothers, they would only believe based on what Jesus would do, what signs he would show in front of others. And so he's not not just losing the crowd, he's losing his family. And so most of us, we know that family isn't perfect, but when push comes to shove, I think in some regards, most of us can rely on family in some form or fashion. But here, Jesus couldn't even count on his family for support, right? Think about his humanity, how that must have broken him. Think about if you were in that same situation and your family wouldn't even stand with you. How would that break you? And so here's, here's the reality. Like sometimes we are called to stand on our own. Sometimes we're going to be the only one 
that is standing firm. And that is really hard. And it's really hard, especially when we don't get to see the faithfulness of God at work. If, if that's been clouded from us. If God hasn't revealed his faithfulness. That's really hard to stand. So look at what J.C. Ryle says. He says, The true servants of Christ in every age will do well to remember this. They are often surprised and troubled to find that in religion they stand alone. They are apt to fancy that it must be their own fault that all around them are not converted like themselves. They are ready to blame themselves because their families remain worldly and unbelieving. But let them look at the verse before us. In, in our Lord Jesus Christ, there was no fault either in temper, word, or deed. Yet even Christ's own brethren did not believe in him. So let's look at verses 6 through 11 again. And we'll see Jesus' response to his brothers. John writes, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast for yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And so Jesus, he tells his brothers, he said, hey, my time hasn't come. I'm not going up to the feast. And so this is very reminiscent of what we saw in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana when um, Jesus' mother is imploring him to act. And so look at what John says in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so as we looked at John chapter 2 several months ago, we looked at when he says that my hour has not yet come, he's referring to his death, his atoning death on the cross. And so this is how, again, we use other scripture uh, in order to interpret scripture. And so we're looking at this because it seems like Jesus is lying when he says, I'm not going up, but then he turns around and he goes up in secret. And so it's not a lie. We know that Jesus is unable to lie. So we want to look at what is he communicating here. And so again, if you look at the original language, what John is communicating is not that he's not going up, but that he's not going up yet. We kind of miss that in the English translation, that he's not going up yet. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to go up to the festival in the way that you want me to. I'm not going to go up there and make a scene and draw a crowd just because you're pressuring me to do this. And so he's, he's resisting the brother's urge to act on his own impulse. He's resisting the urge to go up and make a scene because that doesn't fit into the divine sovereign timeline that God has set forth for the redemption of the world. And so Jesus avoids that temptation. We've seen this over and over when, when people are pressing on him to make a big deal of himself, Jesus withdraws, right? They want to make him king, and he immediately withdraws. He doesn't want any part of that because he's being obedient to the Father's divine plan. He has a complete dependence upon the Father's timeline. But he tells his brothers, hey, guys, your time is opportune because the world can't hate you. The world can't hate you. He tells his brothers that they can go up to the feast anytime they want. They can go up in any manner they want. And why can they do that? 
It's because they're part of the world. And so look at what D.A. Carson says. He says, their alignment with the world means that they know nothing of God's agenda. They They do not listen to his word. They do not recognize it when it comes and cannot perceive the word incarnate before them. And so in short, his brothers, they're unbelievers. Now, they're probably good people. They grew up in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish tradition. But ultimately, they belong to the world And so this reminds us that it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter who your family is. The world ultimately will leave you alone if you don't follow Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the world will leave you alone. And so the brothers, they have nothing to lose. They can go up and do anything they want. But the world hates Jesus. And he tells us that the world hates Jesus because he testifies about its works, its works are evil. And so we've seen this all throughout these few short chapters, that the presence of Jesus, that exposes sin. And when Jesus exposes sin, people get worked up about that, right? That's been a running theme in John. He highlights their empty works. He highlights their reliance on tradition. We'll get to that next week. And these people are leaving in droves because Jesus is pointing them to their spiritual need. And these words that he's teaching them, it ignites anger. So much, they hate him, and they want to see him dead. But Jesus tells us this. He told us this in John chapter 3, 19 and 20, when he's having this conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so hatred, antagonism, that is all part of following Jesus. When we receive that from the world, that is part of following Jesus. We shouldn't ever be surprised by that. And so this is what J.C. Ryle says about this. He says, the real cause of many people's dislike to the gospel is the holiness of living which it demands. Teach abstract doctrines only and few will find any fault. But denounce the fashionable sins of the day and call on men to repent and walk consistently with God and thousands at once will be offended. And that's exactly what we see here in John. And so what does that mean for us? That If we follow Jesus, what does that mean for us? It means that we're going to be enemies. We are going to be enemies with the world. And I want us to know that that's okay. It's okay for us to be an enemy of the world. We're still called to holy living no matter what. Right? Even if we're the only one standing, if... Even we're the only one living a holy lifestyle that Jesus has called us to. It's completely worth it. It is completely worth it, even if we don't see the benefits of it in this life. It is completely and 100% worth it. And I hope that you all are okay with that. I want to tell you, it's okay. It's okay to suffer. It's okay to be a recipient of this hate that the world has for us. So we see Jesus, he goes up 
to the festival, to the feast privately. We talked about this just a minute ago. He's obedient to the Father's divine timetable. But when he gets there, the Jews, they're seeking him out. They want to kill him. And so let's finish with verses 12 and 13. John says, There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So Jesus arrives at the feast. There's division amongst the crowd about who he is. We see some people say, hey, he's a good guy. Others are saying, no, he's trying to deceive us. Both, both are dead wrong. The people saying that he's good, those people, they're missing, they're missing the point. They're missing his redemptive message. They're only looking at his signs and what their signs, what his teachings can, can bring for them. They're missing his greater message of salvation. They're probably also looking for a political messiah, to be honest. They want somebody that's going to save the nation. And then you have some people, they're saying he's a deceiver. He's leading us astray. Don't listen to him at all. And we see this in the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinical writings that rabbis uh, wrote to, to basically contemporary with the times. And we see that that's the overwhelming description that we have on the the historical version of Jesus that the, the Jews write about, they say that he's a deceiver, that his sole purpose was to come and deceive the nation. And so think back to John chapter 1 when he says, John says, his own didn't even receive him. So Jesus has been completely rejected by the Jewish people. He's been rejected by the crowd. So like I said earlier, we want to see that the tension is real. No one wants to speak about Jesus. They say anything in hushed-hushed tones because there's such an intimidation from the authorities. Right? It's crashing down. And so we want to feel, we want to sit in that same intensity. Like I said earlier, it's a difference between a campfire and an inferno. And it is raging. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into his teachings as Jesus confronts these crowds. He confronts this tension. And so just a couple points of application as we get ready to close. So application number one, who do we say that Jesus is? Who do we believe Jesus is? So are we like his brothers? Are we like the crowd? Do we think he's just a good man, a good teacher? Do we believe that he's a deceiver? What about this? Do we think he's a political messiah? Is he a political symbol for us? In our circle of influence, does he carry some sort of social currency? That it's just the acceptable thing to do to say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. But here's the real question. Are our lives any different based on what we believe about Jesus? Are we like Peter at the end of John chapter 6 when he says, Lord, you're the Holy One. You have the words of eternal life. So we keep coming back to this quote from C.S. Lewis, and it speaks to this because every single one of us have to answer this question. C.S. Lewis says, 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So every single one of us, we have to answer this question. The question was in front of the crowd. The question is in front of his brothers. Will we believe who he says he is? And will we allow that to transform who we are? So application number two, will we face opposition? Will we stand when we face opposition? And so most of us, I'd venture to guess, we don't have to stand up in front of an angry crowd that's wanting to kill us. But if we are a follower of Jesus, the world is pressing in on us. The world hates us. It wants to crush us. It wants us to abandon Jesus. It wants us to abandon our pursuit of holiness. But it's not in the way, typically, of the government trying to say that you can't be a Christian anymore. We don't really see that. That's because it's much more subtle than outright. And so, will we do the hard work of following Jesus, or will we take the easy way out? Will we compromise our integrity when we're caught in a jam at work? Will we stoop to pornography or a flirty relationship with a member of the opposite sex if our relationship with our spouse isn't going quite well? Will we admit that we're wrong when a brother or sister calls us out? Will we love others when they've harmed us? Will we care for those who can't care for themselves? Will we enter into the messy situations of life when no one else will? Will we follow the Lord if he calls us and tells us to leave our job? Will we follow him if he calls us and tells us to leave everything in order to take the gospel to the nations? So when we present those questions to ourselves, if we say, hey, I'm still going to stand, I'm still going to stand, people are going to think that you're crazy. People are going to say that you're nuts. People are going to say that you've lost your mind. Even your family might say you're crazy. Your friends might say you're crazy. But when we face the opposition from the world that is trying to separate us 
from Jesus, from following him, from doing his will, are we still going to follow, even when it seems crazy to every single person around us? So application number three. We don't see this directly in this passage, but we can draw it out here. Some of us, we have family that aren't believers, and that is really hard. We've, we've preached, we've shared the gospel with them, we've shared why we believe, we've shared how much we love them, we've seen them not respond, we've seen them maybe walk away, we've seen them deconstruct. And that's really hard. That's super hard. I have people in my own life. But don't be discouraged by that. I want to encourage you, keep preaching the gospel. Keep loving them and keep sharing the gospel. And we can look at Jesus' brothers as a perfect example. They lived with Jesus, and yet they didn't get it. They saw his miracles. They didn't get it. Right? They're like some of our own family. Keep preaching the gospel. And we know that with time... Lord willing, that they will come to faith. And, and we see that with some of his brothers, that they believed in him after his death and resurrection. They acknowledged him as Lord and God, as the Messiah. We know that James, his brother James, who we read about, he became a pillar in the early church. He wrote the book of James. We know that his brother Judas, or Jude, same word, that he would go on to write the, the letter, Jude, that we have in the New Testament. So keep preaching. Don't give up on your family. Don't ever give up. Keep sharing the gospel because we know that the Lord calls people to himself and he's using us in order to share his marvelous grace. So keep preaching. So stand with me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for what you teach us through your word. Lord, I thank you that you endured hostility, that you didn't cave to our ideas, you didn't cave to my idea of who you should have been. But instead, Lord, you meet our deepest spiritual need and you bring us life. Lord, where else can we go but to you? Grant us strength, grant us grace to follow you even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense. Teach us to walk with you, to put our full weight into you. Help us to understand that you're worth it, even, even if we lose everything. So we thank you for your grace that you lavish on us, grace that we don't deserve. So we ask that you have your way in this place now. We give you all the glory. and We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. So the altar is open. If you want to come and pray and wrestle with the Lord, the altar is open. If you want to pray with somebody, Jordan will be over here. I'll be over on this side. But we just ask that you respond as the Lord leads you.